You're listening to The 66 Podcast, a podcast where we study the books of the Bible one at a time. We do that in a three-step process. We read, think, and apply. And Today we are in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. And so far, what we have seen in Daniel hasn't been that difficult to interpret, really, or to read. It's been fun to read because it's very narrative. You know, we've got to read a lot of really interesting stories, stories that you've heard probably growing up, especially when you were a kid in Bible class. But now when we get to Daniel chapter 7 and moving on from here, we're going to read some chapters that maybe you didn't hear about in your Bible class as a kid. Um, how many how many books have we done? Oh, Do you I, know off the top of your I head? no say idea. About a dozen or so, yeah. Let's say ten. I'm thinking about changing the name of the podcast to the ten and a half. The ten and a half and stopping here. Yeah, and just let's just throw throw a hat in. It's throw the towel. That's what throw, I mean. It, we're okay. we're done. Uh, when you it's been great. <laughs> appreciate you guys joining us. This is going to be a short one today. Uh, one minute fifteen seconds, and we're done. Check out our website. Yeah, the ten and a half dot net. Send us an email. No, we can do this. Uh, this is one of the reasons we wanted to do this because, I mean, if you do the 66, then you can't skip anything, which means we'll delve into parts of the Bible that people have been scratching their heads about, parts of the Bible they avoid. We were just talking to somebody that was at the church uh, this afternoon about the podcast on Jeremiah and how she had never you know, delved into it very much and felt that she had better knowledge of it, which very nice compliment, and we like to hear stuff like that. And that's what we're doing with Daniel. Daniel is certainly now going to be more difficult than Jeremiah ever was. Right. The biggest problem with Jeremiah was the organization. Just, Mm -hmm. it kind of looked like they went into the fire and pulled all of Jehoiakim's shreds of paper out and taped them back together, Yeah. but it didn't quite come together like it was originally put together. Mm -hmm. I know that, I'm not saying that's what happened, it's just... uh, you know, that was the, the challenge of Jeremiah, was finding some kind of order. I think Daniel is very well-structured, much like the book of Revelation is well-structured. It's just, it's so uh, apocalyptic, so... Uh, so many possible symbolic. meanings you could attach to things. Right. Because the, they're symbols. Yeah, it's like you see the surface, and it's it's like... It's like your body, you know. There are bones in there, but you can't see them. They're underneath muscle and skin, and yeah. all this other stuff. That's I was gonna say beautiful, but with you and me, it'd just be <laughs> be a just, little awkward. It looks like a person, but there's a skeleton under that. Yeah, uh, that's how the Book of Daniel is. You know, there's some very rigid structure here, but it's it's hard to find. And it's a lot of the stuff we're going to read like today is going to be very challenging. Um, but a little background to what we get into before Drew gives us the outline for this chapter. Uh, this takes place, to give you a little context, in the first year of King Belshazzar. And if you remember our episode from uh, a couple episodes ago, chapter 5, that's the scene of the writing on the wall. Uh, this is the king from that chapter. But this takes place in this guy Belshazzar's first year. First Mm -hmm. year of reigning. And he's probably reigning 
alongside his dad, Nabonidus. If you want to be refreshed on that, you can go back and check out. Yeah, he wasn't very minutes. important at all, and, and really the only reason he's mentioned is to give us a time stamp on the reception of right. the vision. And to give you an idea, I guess for me it's nice to have an, an idea of where Daniel is in his life. You know, yeah. just what's going on, what he's seen up to this point, and what's, you know, the only episode we have after that in the text is the lion's den. But right, for but what we were kind worth, of done with his biography at chapter 6. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Although nine, chapter 9 does have a little, narr- we kind of return to the narrative and then get like the most difficult passage in yeah, the whole yeah. Bible to interpret. So we look forward to that. But, um, you know, this is backing up. And uh, let's say a couple more things about the the broad general context before we get into chapter 7 itself. So this is the first vision chapter. The rest of the book is visions. Also, I used the word apocalyptic a minute ago, and it occurred to me that this may be the first apocalyptic book we've done, unless we've done like a minor prophet here or there. I, I think it is... Most of the minor prophets aren't really apocalyptic in the strictest sense. Not in this nature. With the um, That term, apocalyptic, doesn't mean biblically what we use it for today. Like When people talk about the apocalypse, or that was apocalyptic, they mean it has to do with great judgment, end of the world, destruction, that kind of thing. Maybe a nuclear holocaust. But biblically speaking, apocalyptic, or the apocalypse, has to do with God's pulling the curtain back of heaven and revealing something to us. It means unveiled. And the reason it came associated with the end of the world is because Apocalypsis is the Greek title of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation has a lot of this imagery in it, and so the connotation became judgment and end of the world and all that stuff. But uh, it has to do with a kind of language that was used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, more in the Old Testament than the New Testament, that was very familiar to the Jews, highly symbolic, uh, uses a lot of objects and numbers for symbols, and they knew how to read it. We're not as good at reading it, and we're not as good at knowing the symbols and their meanings. Uh, So that's one thing. Another thing that I'd like to point out is the similarity between what we're about to read in chapter 7 and what we studied in Daniel chapter 2, which was the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the, the, the statue with four layers that represented four different empires. We're going to see four beasts representing four empires. And what's really neat is Daniel chapter 2 verse 4 through Daniel chapter 7 verse 28, basically the end of this chapter, is not written strictly in Hebrew but in Aramaic. And it makes you wonder if that's another way that Daniel was trying to tie together chapters 2 and 7. Uh, because chapter 2 is the beginning of the Aramaic portion, chapter mm-hmm. 7 the end. And they're, they're similar. And This is what I said. There's some structure here. And, you know, it could be coincidental. But it just doesn't seem like it, like it is. Yep. So, I wanted to point that out. What you look for in apocalyptic literature is vivid imagery. You're going to get a lot of that. Some really interesting pictures to hang on your wall. And then also, you um, don't get bogged down in the details. Now, we always tell people to read God's Word carefully. You know, Pay attention to everything God says. 
that can hurt you when you're studying a parable, for example, or apocalyptic literature. There are some things that are just there for dramatic effect. There are some things that are there just to fill the picture out. And you look for one big, broad message, not for a real complicated, detailed message. That kind of stuff was left for legal language or narrative language, historical language. But when you get to something that makes a big emotional impact, you go to symbolic, figurative, prophecy, apocalyptic literature. All right, so have I talked enough about the, you know, what I'm doing is trying to avoid getting into this, but uh, let's let's get into it. The outline that we're going to share with you starts with a vision of beasts, and number two, a vision of God, and then when we get to verse 15, we get to the interpretation which is, you're going to be dissatisfied with the interpretation. What we're going to do is come back in the second part where we usually kind of meander around and and we'll do a lot of interpreting symbols in in segment two. Mm -hmm. And then, like Andrew said, we'll try to find some practical applications for you. There's there's some great ones here if we'll take the time to look for them. So let's start reading. Um, Daniel chapter one, as Andrew said, is set in the time of the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Here we begin with, number one, the vision of the beasts. He saw uh, in this vision by night, verse 2, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. Now you'll remember what I said four layers in the statue in Daniel 2. Mm -hmm. Now we have four beasts. Not coincidental. They symbolize the same four successive empires, beginning with Babylon, followed by Medo-Persia, followed by Greece, followed by Rome. The only one of these standing at the time Daniel received these visions was... Babylon. Okay, just... Soon if I can keep be, you awake... Yeah, soon to maybe, be overthrown by Persia, right? Right, very soon. Because yeah. like you said, it's the writing on the wall guy that's mm-hmm. serving now. So his days are numbered. He's been found wanting. Um, so the first beast, verse 4. A lion with eagle's wings. And as I looked, see the imagery, see the, the, the vividness of the pictures. Daniel's looking with us. He says, as I looked... Its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Hmm. So he kind of lost his mind, and he got his mind back. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that. Second beast, verse 5. It looks like a bear. Uh, He never says it was a bear, but it's like a bear. bear. It was raised up on one side had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Third beast, leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And then we get to the fourth beast. After that, he saw, see the succession after this, after this, after this. So he sees, fourthly, a fourth beast, verse 7, terrifying and dreadful 
and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth. We read about iron in Daniel 2. Iron teeth. Um, It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. (laughs) The little (laughs) horn, just, (laughs) it's funny. Before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Now, does that mean before he saw the little horn, like chronologically, or in front of him, the three horns were plucked up as if he was in control of this, the way Saul of Tarsus was watching the coats of the guys that were stoning Stephen. We can talk about that or just pass over it after I said that much. Mm -hmm. This horn, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. There's the end of the vision of beasts. Let's go in the second place to the vision of God. And God is described here in a Trinitarian fashion, to use this theological term that means three distinct persons and one divine nature as God. Um, people will say that the Jews never believed in a Trinitarian God, a Trinity. They just thought of God as one um, person and one essence. Uh, Genesis 1 starts off with plural pronouns, let us make man in mm-hmm. our own image. And here, I believe, is another of many examples where you see persons in the plural in the Godhead. The Spirit's not mentioned but we'll see God the Father and God the Son. First, God the Father, verses 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days, that's an interesting phrase having to do with God's eternal nature, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Reminds you of the great white throne where the books are opened in Revelation chapter 20. And it should, because uh, John was referring back to this when he wrote those words. Uh, So Daniel now looks and sees another being, Remember that little horn. We come back to it, and uh, the beast is killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So this is still about God and what he does with that beast. As for the rest of them, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Uh, so somebody says the, the, the fourth beast was more terrifying than the others. Why, is he, why are the others not killed also? And it's this is a great example for me to pause and say, this is the kind of dramatic effect and details that that I'm talking about. That that little detail about the other beasts having their dominion taken away, but their lives prolonged for a season and a time, may just be there to draw a distinction between the severity of the punishment on the fourth beast, or fourth empire, compared with the severity of the punishment that came upon beast number one, two, and three. Right. It's not, you know, like it's not meant to be a time stamp on what's going on or how yeah, long. Yeah, they're not still in existence right. during. Yeah. yeah, and you know, he's not making some apocalyptic zoo that he needed a leopard and a, a bear for, but not a terrifying beast. It's just a, a contrast between the fourth beast and the first three. Now 
let's go to the still in the vision of God. In verse 13, we see God the Son, the Messiah. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, Jesus' favorite title of himself was Son of Man. Son of Man is used a lot in the book of Ezekiel to refer to Ezekiel. And Hebrews, whenever they wanted to describe somebody with a particular trait, they would say that he was the son of that thing. You're our resident Hebrew scholar. Isn't it true that the Hebrew language has very few adjectives? And there's something about that where they yeah. don't have a lot of adjectives, and that's why they have this figure of speech, the son of encouragement, the son right. of destruction, that kind of thing. Yeah, right. They would typically attach that kind of designation to somebody if they were, like with, like you mentioned uh, with Barnabas, the son of encouragement. If a guy, they don't say like, man, he's a good, he's a great encourager, you know, or he is right, exceedingly yeah. encouraging. He's an they encouraging would, man. Yeah, they would I call mean, him a son of encouragement. Right. Okay, so that means that what Daniel saw was one who was like a human being. But in this context, it's different from Son of Man and Ezekiel. In this context, what's going to come next will define Son of Man in such a way that it appears to be a messianic title, a title referring to the Anointed One. Right. So Daniel sees in the night visions, one like a Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him, so he's playing a role of a submissive role here to the ancient of days to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples not just Jews not just Babylonians all peoples all nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion he's eternal which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed think Who does Daniel that sound 2 like? Um, who? Can you hear it? Yeah, I, can <laughs> I, I hear think it. it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're definitely talking about Jesus here. Definitely. So, really interesting in the vision of God that's in the middle of this chapter, you see at least two of the three persons of the Godhead, and right. it's obvious that both of them, you know, this the second one being eternal as well. Both of them are part of the Godhead. But I digress. Let's get back into the outline. And after we've looked at the vision of the beasts and a vision of God, we end with the interpretation. Now, this should give our listeners some consolation because in verse 15, Daniel's spirit is anxious and the visions of his head alarmed him. And he asks for help and wants to know the interpretation. And so, first we get... The interpretation of the beasts. Verse 17, The four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Okay? So, we have similar interpretation of Daniel 2. I won't belabor that. But then Daniel wants more about the fourth beast, different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, etc., etc., and he wants to know about the ten horns and the little horn before whom three of them fell. And so, uh, verse 21 is important because we read that this horn 
made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. So this, this little horn is going to be a king who persecuted God's people, which will give you a little hint. This is going to be in the Christian age, not the Hebrew or Jewish age, Old Covenant age. And so this is going to be a time when the saints were persecuted by a great king. And so he says this in verse 23, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it into pieces. And the ten horns uh, are ten kings. Another shall rise after them, be different. Put down the, And he shall put down three kings. So this is the interpretation that before him means he was responsible for their being put down in some way. Right. He shall speak words against the Most High, and a, a correlation to verse 21, shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Persecution. He shall think to change the times and the law. That's something only God should do. And remember, the overall theme of this book is the sovereignty of God, uh, sovereignty of God which is reaffirmed for us in verse 26. The court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart." tie in with Daniel 5 there he's the effect these visions had on him was similar to the effect the hand writing on the wall had on Belshazzar right um, maybe similar to the effect that it had on some of our listeners as they yeah. listen to the I wonder if Daniel reading. put that in there to say hey don't feel bad yeah if this you're, is complicated for me too yeah yeah I think that's one of the comforting things for me, verse 15 in that last verse, mm-hmm. where David says he was a little nerve-wracked after after seeing it. Yeah. And then certainly after reading it, you know, a lot of us feel the same way. back we thought about not coming back but uh, we're back and we want to just look we're just gonna have to walk through this I know that everybody was listening to that last part saying whoa what what was that wait stop slow down what was that over there so we're gonna slow it down try to get through it in a timely fashion and, and give you some interpretations of these of these symbols I'm gonna start in verse 2. I thought about skipping this for this for the sake of time, but um, the first thing Daniel saw was not the beast, but uh, the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. Right. Um, what do you think that means? Well, it could mean a number of different things. Um, there are other passages uh, in places in the Old Testament, like Numbers and Joshua, where we talk about stirring up a great sea it's a reference to the Mediterranean sea 
but then there's many places in the Old Testament that talk about uh, this phrase stirring up refers to or stirring up of the sea actually refers to uh, turmoil fighting and war kind of like in the political sense and I'm going to guess just based on context here I'm going to say this is more I don't think he's talking about the Mediterranean Sea one day is going to bring forth some nightmarish creatures. <laughs> I think yeah, I don't either. About the God is wor- I think this means that God is working in in the political scene. I guess I can't mm-hmm. think of a better word, but He's making things happen. Yeah, the winds the winds are coming out of heaven. Uh, four winds kind of means the totality. The you know from all over heaven in a unified front. Great sea. It could could it not also refer to humanity, the sea of humanity? Yeah. And and a lot of times, just the 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 ground, or the setting of an apocalyptic vision is the sea. It's mentioned several times in the Book of Revelation. One of the beasts comes up out of the sea in Revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a sea of distance between God and humanity in another part of Revelation. So. I, I, you know, it can mean a lot of these things. I think that's one image that needs to stay general. Yeah. And we've probably already spent too much time on it. But uh, now when we get to the beast, Daniel 2 is very helpful because Daniel said, the golden head of the statue that you dreamed about is you. And then we just look at history and see what comes next, and we get the, the next three empires out of that. And so we... Know this lion that is mentioned um, in the next verse is the Babylonian Empire. Now, why does it have wings? I think it has wings so that they can be plucked off. Okay, so because yeah. it's more important to know the the action of plucking the wings off is more important than the existence of the wings to begin with. Yeah, right? there's a couple reasons behind. I think you're exactly right. Uh, I think in some way it's shown to in one way or another this particular kingdom is going to be disabled somehow in mm-hmm. in one regard maybe it's not there's a lot of uh study to show that these wings might mean the swiftness or the quickness of how mm-hmm. uh, like the coming kingdom, up there's definitely a tie in there yeah, yeah with the with the leopard yeah uh, but there's you know one way or the other this beast as we're going to you know, identify, I think, with Babylon, um, they're going to lose something, going to lose some steam, maybe, and then something yes. else interesting is going to happen, too. But well, it makes me think of ahead. Icarus, the the sun with the wax wings mm-hmm. that flew too close to the sun, yeah. the S-O-N that flew too close to the S-U-N, and the wings yeah. melted and he fell. So all over the Bible, you read about the falling of great leaders it's a sign of God's judgment on them for poor leadership or corrupt leadership, which is a, actually a prophecy in Isaiah about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he's the day star that has fallen, the Lucifer that has fallen. Right. So um, this is kind of the same imagery, and uh, we know that Nebuchadnezzar did have a fall. We read about that in Daniel 4, and what's really interesting is the fall... Is return is followed by the restoration of the mind of a man. So you know Nebuchadnezzar recovered in chapter four, 
And this seems to match up with that fall and recovery, mm-hmm. like a madman getting his senses back. Yeah, I was going to say that part is particularly interesting, that even in in his, um, you know, when he was being punished, in that punishment, said he went around like a beast of the field. Yeah. So it's interesting that it's here you have a beast getting the mind of a man, and kind of the same thing happens with Nebuchadnezzar. And... This would have already happened by the time Daniel's right. making this prophecy, which yeah. is, you know, I think lends more credence to the fact that we're definitely talking about Nebuchadnezzar. We're talking about Babylon. We're talking about, um, in correlation to Daniel chapter 2, that head of gold that mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream about. All right, let's move on to the bear. So there's one that has an appearance like a bear. He's raised up on one side. Some have suggested that indicates that one side of the kingdom that is being described is more powerful than the other side. And uh, this kind of comes up again in other imagery. In chapter 8, uh, he sees a ram two, with two horns. Both horns are high, but one was higher than the other. And then in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 8, uh, if I can get over to it, that uh, ram with one horn higher than the other, that asymmetry, is described as the kings of Media and Persia. So the Medes and Persians were just like that. The Medes were weaker than the Persians. This was, right. we often just call it a Persian empire, but it's a Medo-Persian empire. They, they joined forces... Darius that we read about in what chapter 6 he was a Mede but the Persians were in charge Cyrus the Great was in charge he was the greater one so this this matches up well with this description as well yeah certainly think? let me ask you what you think about those three ribs okay. in his mouth got an idea on that um, according to history the there were three nations conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire Lydia in 546 Babylon, of course, 539, and then Egypt probably wasn't fully conquered, but uh, was suffered a bad defeat in 525. So that's an interesting tie-in. Of course, there might have been other victories if somebody had come in and say, hey, wait a minute, they didn't just beat three empires, there was more. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, that's pretty, pretty, it's too much to be coincidental. Yeah, I've got uh, that and another thing about this. Uh, there's all these correlations to how a bear is, is I guess, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Um, very destructive and violent and, you know, tears things apart. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of correlations drawn between why a bear would have been used to the brutality of the Persians, uh, you know, when they were the world empire. And then we have this thing with the three ribs about what they could represent and uh like you mentioned those three nations that they conquered and i'm wondering if these things so for example trying to attach the brutality of the bear to the brutality of the persians and the ribs to the specific nations which i think the ribs and the nations like you said might be too big of a coincidence to just look over but with some of these things how much do you think we should attach you know, okay, bear is brutal. Persia was brutal. That's why God chose to use the bear as the image for Persia. I mean, do you think we should maybe use that as a good memory tool 
but not necessarily say well, we this certainly, is why. If it had been a dove, we certainly would have drawn some conclusions based on that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he chose a ferocious animal. It could have been a different animal, maybe. It could have been a lion. We've already used that, though. It could be a leopard. Well, we've already used that. So it had to be something different. Um, I, I think I think it has to do with viciousness and violent and power. You know, yeah. uh, bear's going to be usually the winner in the room after the fight is over. Um, I'll say so. I think it's interesting. We call Russia the bear, and uh, yeah. I thought about some other. Uh, you know, on Wall Street, a bear market is not good. Bull bull markets. What you want a bear market is um, bad news. So maybe these were um, stockbrokers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, I'm sure they were. They were Russian stockbrokers. Russians. Is that what you're <laughs> yeah. Daniel Seven is a prophecy yeah, we're kind about of mixing, Russian stockbrokers. Yeah. Okay. With Persian. That time mix. time to move to the third one. I think we've exhausted that. Yeah, I think so. So uh, the third beast is this leopard with four wings. Now, before we said the wings were there uh, so they could be torn off to describe falling. But here, here I think the wings are important. There's four of them where they're just, where they're just two, two wings on the... It just had wings, period. So now there's four on a leopard. And how do you make a leopard faster than he already is? You wings. give him wings. Right. So Not speed, just two wings, four. Yeah, the speed it has something to do with this. Now, this is way into the future from Daniel. Correct. Yet, it matches Greece really well because Alexander the Great came into power in Macedonia at the age of 20-ish, something mm-hmm. like that. And within five five years, he was ruling the Eastern world. Um, going back to chapter 8, which we'll look at next week, there are other beasts describing these nations... And in Daniel 8, the king of Greece comes from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. So there's obviously a tie-in to speed, uh, the quickness. But uh, then this leopard has four heads, and um, what happens to him? Uh, Four heads and dominion was given to it. And then later we read that the four heads, uh, the kingdom is... Divided among the four heads, so um, this actually happened in Greek history. Yeah, uh, Alexander had no heir; uh, he died prematurely at the age of thirty-two or something like that. And um, his generals poisoned, right? Uh, maybe, yeah, probably something like that. Someone I'm sure him. he didn't die of natural causes. Yeah. Um, Lysimachus took Asia Minor, Cassander had Greece, Seleucus took Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's very, that group is very important in the time between the Testaments. And Ptolemy claimed Egypt and Palestine. Uh, The Ptolemies are really important during that time frame as well. Yeah, I was going to say those last two names. Anybody that's done studies in the intertestamental period will be very, very familiar with the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So Greece, that's basically why the Grecian Empire didn't last very long. It was split four ways, and uh, just like this leopard had four heads. Now, the fourth beast has to refer, I'm sure everybody knows where we're going with this, to the Roman Empire. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. I think Rome deserves that. 
Uh, one difference was that it had no no sign of dependence. So the first one, verse 4, it was lifted up and the mind of man was given to it. The second was told by some, you know, we assume God, arise, devour much flesh. The third one, the leopard, was given dominion, but this one seems to be powerful on its own. But that may be just the way for God to build some suspense in the in these visions for later in verses 11 and 12, uh, the Lord destroys this beast. It's mm-hmm. terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It trampled all the other kingdoms with its iron teeth and it had these ten horns. And you could spend all... And this is where people usually get stuck. Okay, which which emperors, which rulers in Rome are represented right. by the ten? We've got to get three before the, the little one and <laughs> all this. That's when we really start getting mixed up. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that these should be kept general. Ten is a symbol of completeness in the Old and New Testaments. Um, this little horn, before which three of the first horns are plucked up by the roots... Um, I don't think, this is my opinion, I don't think we should put a whole lot of credence into the number three, uh, like counting from Augustus to Tiberius and so on. I don't think we should be doing that because it just doesn't work out. And and it doesn't, the fact that it doesn't work out doesn't mean that Daniel was all wrong and that the Bible's not inspired. It's just that we're reading this wrong. This is just, three is a pretty good chunk out of ten. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the idea. Um, and the little horn had eyes like the eyes of a man. That means intelligence, a mouth speaking great things. This probably has to do with the personality of, of this guy. We're, we'll get more into who he is in verses when we get to verses 23 through 26. But we, that brings us to the end of this first major set of visions. What Do you need to add anything to it? What um, do you think? No, I'm just still... I'm still thinking on your, uh, you know, what you said about not taking these ten horns literally. In the past, I've always thought of these, you know, tried to make them fit. So I know we're, I know exactly what you're saying. Well, that you're comment comes from my stuff. trying to make them fit yeah. for hours and hours and hours, and not and not ever are, coming to a perfect. Right, and there have been so many books and so many sections of books. Written about this, exa- I know a guy who wrote his his thesis was on this very thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he spent hours and hours studying it all. But I do, you know, I think, uh, you know, what you mentioned even at the beginning of the podcast about not getting hung up on some of these details that might not even be details in the sense that we think that they are. Mm-hmm. You know, so ten, like you said, could be representative of just. Lots of uh, powerful kings. Lots of powerful kings. You look earlier in verse 10 where he's talking about uh, the Ancient of Days. There's something about, and I guess people can take this with a grain of salt if they want to. There's something about tens and ten times this and ten thousand and that it denotes just a very large number. In verse 10 of chapter 7, this is talking about the people that are before the Ancient of Days. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. There's a lot of other places I know that our listeners can think of off the top of their head where uh, these numbers are mentioned. And one 
One guy I was reading earlier today goes so far as to say multiples of 10 in general. I don't think I buy that. Someone says 70 or 20 or 30 in the Old Testament. I don't think that means just a big group of people. So I don't want to take it as far as multiples of 10. But I don't think it's that big of a stretch. It's just as much of a stretch to make this a bunch of kings as it is to make it exactly 10, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. it, It does... It's an interesting detail, though, because do we today, and, th- and I'm I'm reading this through 21st century glasses, and I know that's not a great thing to do, but who do we, wh- which empires do we talk about the personalities of the kings the most? That boy, that was a terrible way of phrasing that question. <laughs> Just it seems like with Rome. We are more fascinated with their rulers than we are even the rulers of Egypt or Greece. I mean, there wasn't many to talk about with regard to Greece. Persia. You know, the average person doesn't watch movies and think about the the kings of Persia. When you get to Rome, there are all these very interesting characters. You know, Shakespeare wrote about Julius Caesar. You've got um, Augustus was interesting. You've got um, Tiberius. Not as interesting. Caligula, Nero, very interesting, yeah. very dangerous people. Uh, you know, Claudius, lot, lots of them. And, you know, we can just, we can talk about them and, and tick them off. You know, there's one, two, three, four. Uh, we don't do that with other nations. So I think the detail that these these standout horns, these standout kings I think it's are part of it is kind of the nature of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Influenced by our thoughts on Rome, maybe. Yeah. Even just how we've maybe it matches well. Yeah. That's all I know. I you know, it's it's my suggestion of another way to look at this than trying to line this up with ten guys. Yeah. Um but we still this little horn is somebody. We'll get to that in a minute. What do we need to say about the vision of God? A little easier to understand maybe? Mm-hmm, I think so, for Ancient sure. Ancient of Days has to have to do with the eternal nature of God, the white hair and clothing. We're talking about purity and holiness, right? Yeah, must have to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, fire, there's a court, books are open, that's judgment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the thousands serving him have to do with his sovereignty and his power and yeah. his subjects and his authority. Yeah. Um, we get... You know, the beast is brought up again in verses 11 and 12 just to show that he's totally destroyed. We said a lot about that in the last segment. Mm -hmm. We said a lot about, I think we set up the messianic implications of verses 13 and 14 good enough. Right. Uh, Not trying to speed through this stuff, but if we've already talked about it, we probably should just move on. Yeah, we mentioned the eternal nature of Christ, and that's exactly, I think, what we get out of thirteen fourteen, so yeah, and and a and a, a change to the phrase "son of man" from the way that was used before this prophecy. Every time Jesus says "son of man," he is thinking about Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen. Um, right. But it was also used just to refer to a human being in Ezekiel, other places. Right. Yeah, Ezekiel. We'll yeah, to emphasize somebody's human qualities, and of course Jesus was a hundred percent. God and 100% man, which is a fascinating thing for Daniel to be thinking mm-hmm. if he were not inspired. Right. You know, well, where would he have come up with that idea? 
So, mm-hmm. very, very interesting stuff. And it's a shame we're moving through it so quickly. Um, but let's get back to the fourth beast. We, we drop down to verse 19. We're back on him again. Teeth of iron, claws of bronze. Oh, that's the fourth beast. Uh, then we need the horn. That's what I was trying to look. Mm-hmm. This verse horn. 20, he starts asking him about the horn. Okay. So, what do we know about this little horn? Um, it has eyes and a mouth. And its size, do you... I don't know what the size means. I really don't. Is that there to show that he's less powerful than the other horns? I just don't get that from reading this. Because why would somebody being less... Why would somebody less powerful be brought and he's, as a dangerous person? And he's speaking on what Daniel calls great words. Um, let's see what he says. At the end of verse 8, he says... This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And then in verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So, and then again in verse 20, the one we just uh, made reference to, the horn had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. So in some way, it's greater than its companions, but... It's not the size, obviously, but it's got something to do, I guess, with the fact that it has eyes and a mouth and is saying all these great things. That you know, a maybe not a, a great military commander, but somebody who smooth talker, maybe was a smooth talker and very powerful in his own political way. And uh, it has to be someone who persecuted the church. Right. We're in Rome, so 21. it can't it can't have to do with a Jewish persecution, and. Um, you know, twice, verse 21 and 25, uh, he is making war with the saints and prevailing over them. And verse 25, he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. He's an enemy of God. He tries to assume the place of God, so this might have to do with the imperial cult, which has to do, which means emperor worship, someone who is worshipped as God. In my studies, that would lead me to think of a person like Domitian, Although history has very little to say about Domitian and his emperor worship, his ties to emperor worship, there are some. There is enough out there to give us him as a candidate, mm-hmm. you know. And I believe Domitian was the the emperor in the background of the Book of Revelation, but I believe it was his provincial rulers out in Asia Minor who were really creating the problems. He had just made something policy that helped them persecute Christians. Yeah, um, I do think it's we don't interesting know for sure. with this guy Domitian. Uh, around AD ninety, he tried to force all Christians to worship him, to uh, worship the emperor, and those who did not faced imprisonment or death. So there is some evidence of some persecution during the time of Domitian, and there are a lot of a lot of um, very conservative biblical scholars will agree with that. The Domitian is the little horn. Now, there's a lot of other stuff, or a lot of other uh, guesses at what this horn represents. Um, I'll just bring these up, and Drew, if you think we should get into them, let me know, but if we should just mention them and move on, that's I'm fine with doing that. Okay. Um, there are some views, a really interesting view, um, that this has to do with the Maccabean Revolt. Have you heard that? I hadn't heard that. Mm. I just read this today. I, I have not considered that. 
as a possibility. Um, well, I don't really consider it a possibility either, so we'll leave that one there. But in case that, that's a Greek that that comes at the wrong time, uh, the Greeks were still in charge at that time. Yes, this is back. This is the intertestamental period. Yeah, and there there's a Roman. You know, I I have to admit a little ignorance on this point of history, but the Roman Senate, you know, the Republic was growing in Rome, but it wasn't the Roman Empire. And we're looking at these ten kings as emperors, so it just doesn't fit. Well, now, you know, when we get up to the actual revolt of uh, Judas Maccabeus, we're getting up to um, Antiochus the Third, or otherwise yes. known as Antiochus Epiphanes. the Great, Antioch. Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're talking about we're talking about the Roman army here. Uh, well, the Roman army is up against uh, Antiochus here, but there's there's a lot of different things in play. Well, I don't. At this yeah, time see, it's it's very convoluted to try and draw that conclusion. Just in case any of our listeners come across that. Right. Uh, and this next thing I think that is going to be worth bringing up um, is the AD 70 doctrine that this is going to be talking about. <laughs> I see you rolling your eyes over there. We've, we haven't brought this up in this podcast yet on this book, but I know we've yeah. brought it up several times and discussed it at length. Um, and basically, the idea here is that what we're talking about with the Son of Man coming in at the end of all this to have a kingdom that won't be destroyed, that happens in A.D. 70. Uh, the second coming of Christ is in A.D. 70. The resurrection is in A.D. 70. And we're all just kind of... Why wouldn't anybody draw that conclusion from this? Well, I mean, that's, I believe... a good, that's a good question. They say that this little horn is Titus. Who you know is the general that comes in and destroys Jerusalem in AD seventy. Um, so it's, I mean, I don't think there's any credence to that either. But I guess just for the sake of being thorough. So yeah, well, we haven't even named the the one interpretation that's probably the most common for the little horn, the Antichrist. Oh right. Yeah. You know, the dispensationalists will tie these things into a futuristic uh, millennial kingdom of Christ that has not yet come, and they're looking for the little horn now. Uh, some have compared him to the Pope because he pretended to be God. Uh, like, um, where is it? I think it's around verse 25. He thinks to change uh, the times yeah. and the law, mm-hmm. and they tie that in with papal power. Uh, we don't want to get too dogmatic about it, but I think the best way to read this is to first get what you do know, which is that this is the Roman Empire. Not the Roman Senate, not the Roman Republic, not the Greek Empire, but the Roman Empire, which came into being right before Jesus was born. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Or, yes. Yes. It's within a, a yeah. re- reasonable amount of time. Yeah, just a few decades before Christ was born. Christ comes, there is, you know, some ruler of this empire who persecutes God's people, the saints. And Daniel is troubled. We were joking around 
But Daniel was troubled not because he was baffled by the visions, not because he felt like in the end God's people may lose, but he's troubled because of the persecution that is still in the future to be suffered by God's people while he's sitting here at the end of a 70-year captivity. He was thinking, we're finally turning the corner. Then he gets this vision, this burden upon him, that years down the road, God's people are still going to be conquered, imprisoned, killed, persecuted. And I believe that is why, at the end of all of this, his color changed and he you know, was troubled by it and alarmed by it. So, yeah, because of the persecution that's going to come. And I do think it's interesting to note that this, the bottom line of this vision is the same from Daniel 2. So they both have the same overall general interpretation, right? That there's going to be four kingdoms come up and after that yeah. an eternal kingdom. So as we come back for just a few minutes to apply some of the things that we have studied, if you're still with us at this point on this episode, I think the most obvious one for me is really just how to handle a difficult passage. I think that's one of the most practical applications we can get from this, because you read this and there's a lot of things that we discussed earlier, well, is this meant to be real specific or is this kind of general How do I know which one? How do I know which book to listen to? Which scholar to listen to? There's so many different opinions about so many different things in this really obscure prophecy. You know, if God wanted to tell Daniel that four kingdoms were going to come and what those four kingdoms were going to be, why wouldn't he just say, hey, Daniel, I want to tell you what's about to happen. Babylon's going to fall to the Persians. Persians are going to fall to the Greeks. And then the Greeks are going to fall to the Romans. Then after the Romans, we're going to have uh, the eternal kingdom that my son is going to come set up. Or during the Romans. Yeah, yeah. during the Roman time, I'm going to send my son, who's going to be named Jesus, and who's going to be born of a virgin named Mary. You know, when we start thinking, what if, I think we have we need to recognize a couple things. Number one is that God's ways are not our ways. God's a lot smarter than we are. You know, I think you can read through um, some of the historical books of the Old Testament, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and come out on the other end of that thinking, you know, feeling pretty good about yourself, thinking, man, you know, I know I know everything there is to know and with a lot of other things to study. But then when you get to a passage like this, I think it forces you to have a little humility. Yeah. You know, and there are other passages like that. Certainly, Unfortunately, they're more in Daniel. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't always have that effect on people. Yeah. You know, they, they insist, I know what this means. This has to do with the Nazis uh, meeting up with Charles Manson, and they form a secret cult that's coming out in 10 years. Right. You know, they'll come up with these crazy things mm-hmm. and are so sure of themselves that they miss the whole point. Right. And so you could look at it as I read this and it humbles me. I, I'm thinking, I guess what I'm saying is starting to turn into, you can't read this until you're humble. Yeah, 
That's a really not good to say point that to we're make. just great at humility over here, but I'm probably the most humble person you, around. <laughs> you you are a humble person, don't? <laughs> I, but you know you have to appro- you have to approach this with ears to hear in a receptive mood, not a not a um, you know I, know I already know the truth now I'm yeah. going to go find it. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the other point I want to make on this real quick is when you're faced with a difficult passage like this. Um, you're either going to have that humble attitude and think, well, God's ways are not my ways. God is, you know, he is is beyond me in so many different ways. And you can trust in his word that, you know, the way he communicated it was the way to communicate it. Or you just drop it all Mm -hmm. and you think, okay, well, this is crazy. I'm out of here. Why doesn't he just say it? Yeah, why wouldn't he just say it? I hear that all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, about about the Bible and other forms of literature. And the fact is, we need to be open to other kinds of literature. I mean, these days we want it so direct because we don't we don't want to think, we don't want to read slowly, mm-hmm. we want to get it bang, 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 as fast as the Internet can give it to us. Yeah. And we want, you know, we want study Bibles that give us the commentary that tells us what it means. We want, the, uh, want to be able to Google the answer and get the answer on Google. And... The, one of the reasons for apocalyptic literature or for poetry is to force us to read it over and over and over again. And as you do that, you do start to understand more, but more importantly for this type of literature, you get an emotional impact. You know, I look at it this way. There are some movies that I enjoy the first time I see them, and they just fly by. And then a couple hours after I've seen them, I'm not thinking about them. Then there are mm-hmm. other movies that are a little hard to slog through, but for some reason, for the next several days or weeks after, they stick with me. Same with music or you know art or you know whatever you're into. You know what I'm talking about. There's the popular medium, and then there's the the art. Yeah. And art stays with you. It might not be the most entertaining thing in the world. It makes it may you think. be work, but it makes you think, and it stays with you for a long time. This stuff in Daniel is stuff that's going to stick with you. Um, you won't forget. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to forget four beasts. You're not going to forget the 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 leopard with four wings. You know yeah. these these pictures are vivid. Or that's what whatever it's meant your to do. imagination draws up for that fourth one. I do think we did. I don't think we really talked about that, but it's interesting. That the fourth one's not compared to anything. It just says he's terrifying. Yeah. And has ten horns. Right. I mean, that the little horn, you know, talking all the time, that... Yeah, that seems a little cartoonish. I probably don't have... Yeah, I probably have more of a caricature Goofy. of him than what he really is. Um, but he's a persecutor of Christians, which leads me to another point we need to make in the practical application before we hang up the phone here. We're not really on a phone. I was, I was trying to be clever. <laughs> Before we stop the podcast, uh, and that is the the overall message here is that God's in control of all the nations, and He's sending Christ, who's going to establish a kingdom more powerful than any kingdom that's ever ruled on the earth, and His people will reign with Him, and we will be victorious, mm-hmm. despite the little horn and His wars. He is going to be taken out, and he's going to be taken out easily. And so Christians should not fear government interference. Uh, 
Uh, they should not fear powerful nations, imperial nations. A message that is becoming more and more relevant today, despite the fact that we've been over this road many, many times before. Nations come and nations go, mm-hmm. but the Son of Man will rule forever and ever and ever. Right. So we appreciate you joining us. This was one of the tougher ones. I know we got a little we got a little off track in a few places. Forgive us for that. But hey, what would you do? If you can do it better, right. we invite you to come and sit in with us before we finish the book of Daniel. You'll get a chance to prove how good you are at this. We're just uh just a couple of humble <laughs> servants right. who are We're extremely humble. Yeah. And maybe we're missing a As full we've already noted. You know, maybe we're not in a full deck here, but that's okay. <laughs> um, look us up on the 66.net, mm-hmm. A Kingsley at ARCOC.com, D Kaiser at ARCOC.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Twitter, Facebook. on Facebook, we're on everything. We're all over the place. Not Instagram or the Snapchat. We haven't had that one. Champ? Either. Snapchat? We're on, we do MailChimp. Daniel chapter 8 is going to be just as exciting a ride, so I hope that you join us. We'll do that next time on the 60s.